Do you want to become an old man filled with regret, waiting to die alone? These are the words that are repeated throughout the movie Inception, a film by Christopher Nolan that blurs the lines between dreams and reality in a spectacular, if not in a disorienting way. Do you want to become an old man filled with regret? I pose the question because it seems to me that this is the sort of thing that King David was wrestling with at this age and stage of his life. You might say that David is in the midst of a post-midlife crisis. If you think about it, it makes sense. He was anointed by Samuel the prophet a few years before he actually became king. He was 30 years old when he became king, and he reigned 40 years in Jerusalem. In this story, he is much closer to the end of that journey than he was at the beginning. So over the course of David's reign, we have seen a variety of changes take place in him. Like all men, David evolved. The storyline of David, the warrior king, has faded into history and memory. And the storyline of David, the worship leader, is struggling to get up on its feet and to get traction as David seeks to reinvent himself. Like all men, David has changed for better and for worse. Over the past few weeks, we have watched David's ascent from the pastures up to the palace. He's gone from being the keeper of sheep to becoming the king of Israel. He has grown from a young boy to an older man. And a lot of things have changed. In his youth, he was faithful and zealous. But in his old age, he is more anxious and fearful. In his youth, he fought lions and bears. He slayed Giants, he scalped enemies, he played hide-and-seek from bounty hunters in the wilderness. He played guitar, he wrote songs and poems, he prayed, he got married, he had kids, he raised a family. His kids got married, they had kids, and made him a grandfather. And through it all, the Lord preserved his life and gave him peace from all of his enemies on every side. And so up to this point in David's story, what we see is a man who is on the rise, a man who is on fire for the Lord. But today, we see a different kind of David. We see David in a different light. In his older age, things have changed. The fire has died down, the zeal has cooled off. Now David's Fights are with the luxuries and the metaphysical boredom of his life. He's confronted with many regrets and remorse. He wrestles with the memories of the sickness and the loss of some of his children. As he wonders about a daughter who was sexually abused by one of his sons. A rebellious son who died while trying to overthrow David's kingdom. Not to mention all of the political rivals, the ordinary decays of nature felt in his own body, and the fact that the finish line of his life is just right there on the horizon. The end is coming. 
The music and the prayers don't come as easily as they used to. David is an old man filled with regret. He's forgotten some things that he should have remembered, and he's remembering some things that he should have forgotten. But we know this because of the way this story unfolds before us. The Lord draws near, stirs David out of his spiritual malaise by raising up an adversary against Israel. Our English translations say Satan. The Hebrew says a Satan could be an adversary or it could be the devil himself. But either way, David feels threatened and he reacts to this situation like any other worldly king would react He takes inventory and calculates the size and the scope and the scale of his army. He wants to see the strength of his military. And the results of this inventory, the results of this census will determine David's next steps. If he has enough military force, he will engage his adversary in warfare. But if he doesn't, he will likely need to negotiate for peace. Now, there's nothing wrong at all with David taking a census. I want to be very clear about that. The problem is the way David took the census. The law of Moses gives instructions on how a census was to be taken and how the number of all the fighting men 20 years and older was to be calculated. So the problem here is not that David took a census. The problem is that David took a census out of accord or violating the instructions that God gave in the law. In the book of Exodus, the law of God required a census to be conducted in a specific way. It says, the Lord said to Moses, when you take the census of the people of Israel, then each shall give a ransom for his life to the Lord when you number them, that there be no plague among them when you number them. He goes on to say that everyone, all the fighting men who are counted in the census are supposed to give a portion of silver to the sanctuary, and that is to show the people of God that whether you are rich or poor, your life has the same value in the sight of God, and that value is high. And this is the way the Lord receives an offering to make atonement for the life of the people. The law says you shall take the atonement money from the people of Israel and shall give it to the service of the tent of meeting that it may bring the people of Israel to remembrance before the Lord as to make atonement for their lives. So if I can unpack that for you a bit, here's what's going on. By requiring every enlisted man in the military to pay a ransom for his life, God is impressing upon his people that life is sacred. The ransom payment was given to support the ministry of the priest and to serve as a memorial to the Lord that atonement has been made, meaning that all of Israel's fighting men are covered whether they live or die in battle. The atonement money reminded Israel and her kings that worship is greater than warfare, that a soldier's life is costly, not cheap, and that the armies of the Lord belong to the Lord, not to the kings. Now, what does all that have to do with David's census in 1 Chronicles 21? What we see is that David remembered to call for a census, 
But he forgot to call for atonement money. He failed to obey God's law. And it looks very much in context of the story like David is acting in the fear of man, not by faith in the Lord. The other thing we see here is that David failed to consult the Lord as he had done so many other times in the past. Instead of reaching out to God in prayer, David is reacting in his own power and by his own plans. As if the armies of Israel belonged to him and as if he could take care of his enemies on his own. David is a changed man in this story. He is still a man of action, but he is doing what is practical, doing what comes natural to him, doing what appears to be responsible. He's making decisions and taking actions in the pride of his own personal experience, in the power of his flesh. He can say, been there, done that, got the t-shirt. This reminds me of something one of my professors shared with us many years ago. He said that when he first came to the United States and he began to visit churches and meet pastors, he came from Scotland, he said that he was struck by just how much evangelicals in America had accomplished with so little prayer. We've got the expertise, we've got the skills, we've got the money. We got the power. We can do this. It's a damning observation on the way evangelical churches in America have become secularized. And tragically, we see in the story, David is trying to do the same thing. But keep in mind that this is a changed David, a different David. It's still the same king. But he's a changed man. It's the same king that once threw caution to the wind and descended into a valley with reckless abandon. The same king that squared off against a giant while armed only with a staff and five smooth stones and a sling. It's the same king that once shouted, you come at me with technologically advanced weapons, but I come at you in the name of the Lord Almighty, the God of the armies of Israel. And in about five minutes, the whole world is going to know that it is not by sword and not by spear that the Lord saves, for the battle belongs to the Lord. But that was then, and this is now. And now the king is more cautious, he's more calculating, he's more careful. When he was a young man, he could afford to walk by faith in the zeal of the Lord. He had so little to lose. But now he's an older and worldly wise man, and he knows the way the game is played. He knows that he cannot afford to not walk by sight in the knowledge of the real world. There's so much more at stake. His reputation, his family, his legacy. And he doesn't want to lose all that he has fought for and all that he has worked for. So he's going to do everything in his power to hold it all together. And we see that in this moment of weakness, in this moment of unfaithfulness, he acts responsibly. Like any worldly king, he seeks to make Israel safe 
and secure by sword and spear, not by spirit. In the name of David, the king of the armies of Israel. I wonder, as you look into the mirror of this story, if any of you see yourselves in it at all. Pragmatism, overwhelming principles. Faith giving way to fears, devotion getting domesticated, passion professionalized, common sense pushing away Christ's spirit. After so many years in the faith and 30 of those years in the ministry, I make a confession. I feel every one of these struggles. I see these same tendencies in my own life. I feel this temptation. Do you? Sometimes I wonder what happened to that fearless pastor, fire in his bones and faith in his heart. Where did he go? What's he doing now? What happened? Why did he change so much? Is he an old man filled with regret? David seemed to be. He sinned by neglecting God's law, by breaking God's word. He acted foolishly by relying on earthly wisdom. Self-seeking wisdom. He acted foolishly by not relying on heavenly wisdom. Submissive wisdom. He should have prayed, if it is the Lord's will, we will live and do this or that. Instead, he felt the need to boast and brag in his military power. To trust in the number of soldiers and swords and spears at his disposal. He forgot that even his life is but a mist and a vapor. Scriptures say that his action was abominable to Joab, his right-hand man, who was the leader, the commander of the armies. But it was evil in the eyes of the Lord. So you know what happened next? The Lord responds to what David was doing. And you see in the story very clearly, right, that the Lord responded by striking David for his sin. By disciplining David for his disobedience. By. Is that what happened? No. The Lord struck Israel just as he had warned his people he would do in the law. Pestilence breaks out, there's a plague sweeping through the land. Does that seem right and fair to you? Is it unfair? Is it wrong? Shouldn't the person who sinned be struck and punished for his own sin? Why should others have to suffer for the bad decisions that David made? Why do bad things happen to so many good people? These are all legitimate questions, but the simple answer is that this is how God has designed the world. This is the order of reality. And David was the representative of Israel before God. David's victories were Israel's victories, and when his victories were their victories, no one complained. 
No one said, only the man who got the victory should enjoy the victory. They all enjoyed it. But David's failures are also Israel's failures. His defeats are also their defeats. And that is where the grumbling and the complaining kicks in. Like shepherd, like sheep. David's sin affects all of Israel and brings a curse upon them. Just as his obedience would have affected all of Israel and brought a blessing on them. Why is this the case? Well, for those of you who are Marvel Comics fans, remember the wisdom of Uncle Ben, who said to Peter Parker, with great power comes great responsibility. Last year, Christianity Today ran a podcast on the rise and fall of Mars Hill. If you don't know what that story is about, consider yourself one of the blessed, the elect of God, if you will. But for the rest of us who had to live through some of that, you know that the story is about more than one pastor's empire that he built and then tore down through his own sin and failure. The story is also about the dark side of American evangelicalism and its insatiable lust for performance and power, for passion and personalities, for celebrity over character. We can see it in the way they chase after their favorite politicians, in the way they prop up their favorite pastors. Hardly a week goes by that we don't hear about some evangelical leader that has slipped or stumbled into sin and scandal, usually involving some abuse or misuse of money, sex, and power, or some combination of the three. And what is the effect that has on the churches? Like pastors, like people. This past week was no exception. It's no wonder that so many people in our culture have become skeptical and cynical of the Christian faith. No wonder so many pastors and priests wrestle over whether they should press on toward the goal or tap out now before they stumble and fall and become the next headline. St. Paul looked around in his day and asked, Who is worthy of such a task? Who is worthy of the ministry? And pastors in our day look around and we ask, Who's next? Who's next? I met with a newly ordained minister just a few days ago who told me with tears in his eyes that he is afraid to even get started in ministry. And I had to tell him with tears in my eyes that I know many other ministers. Who are afraid that they have to go on. Afraid that they might even stumble before they finish the race. This is holy fear. This is reverence and awe. It's healthy, but it hurts. Recently, a fellow minister asked me, 
What if I told you that there's a man out there that wants to kill you? That all he does is plot and scheme ways to take you down. That day after day he makes assassination attempts on your life. Would that change how you live? Would it change how you minister? It should because that man is the devil and he wants to kill you. The truth of the matter is that the devil wants to kill every single one of us. And he knows the principle so well, like priests, like people. And so if he can take down a priest, a king, a prophet, a pastor, in order to bring down the people of God, he will do it 10 out of 10 times. This is one of the reasons, by the way, that you are commanded by God to pray for your leaders and your rulers. Not just your political rulers, but your spiritual leaders as well. Why? In a story like this, we see that the devil is always working. I watch American Idol with my wife and daughter. And I learned this bit of wisdom from Katy Perry. (laughs) The devil works harder. The devil works harder. And you see it here as he stood against God's people and provoked their shepherd. And their shepherd was drawn off sides into sin. And his sin affected all of Israel and brought a curse. So that the Lord struck Israel and that put David in a tight spot. David says in our English translation, I'm greatly distressed. And I wanted to know, what does that mean in Hebrew? And so I mustered up all of my feeble skills and learned that it means I'm in a tight spot. The Lord commands David to consider the gravity of his sin, to choose one of three punishment options. And we might think that, well, this is a test to see how seriously David takes his sin and how David feels that sin should be punished. None of the options seem good to him. He can't choose the lesser of the three options without appearing to minimize his own sin and treat it lightly. He cannot choose the greater of the three options without maximizing the punishment for his sin and inflicting pain on the entire nation. So what does he choose? What does he do? Which one does he pick? And the answer is none of the above. Somehow David figured out that what the question was really about is which form of justice do you want? And David's reply essentially says, I don't want justice. And we know that because he does what all sinners, including you and me, ought to do in the face of judgment. And that is plead for mercy. Let me fall into the hand of the Lord for his mercy is very great, but do not let me fall into the hand of men. Lord, have mercy. Christ, have mercy. Let me fall into your hand. According to the Psalms of David, the Lord's hand is what has supported him and sheltered him in the past. It's what has upheld him and defended him. Perhaps, David reasons, he will do so again in the present. 
It might have been during this actual crisis that David prayed these words from Psalm 31. Into your hand I commit my spirit. For you have redeemed me, O Lord, faithful God. Be gracious to me, O Lord, for I am in distress. My soul and my body are wasted from grief. My times are in your hand. Rescue me from the hand of my enemies and persecutors. Make your face shine on your servant. Save me in your merciful love. What does... What does it look like in this story to fall into the hands of mercy? It's a severe mercy. It looks like a plague that takes the lives of 70,000 fighting men. It looks like a sword in the hand of the angel of the Lord, ready to strike a city and destroy its inhabitants. It also looks like the Lord God changing his mind about destroying his people. It looks like God's mercy triumphing over judgment. It looks like the days of the plague being cut short. No chance the plague lasted three days. Maybe three minutes. Maybe three hours. But not three days. And we know that because... The Lord was moved by compassion in his merciful love for his people. When he saw their suffering, when he heard their cries, the Hebrew says that he repented of the evil that he planned to do. And he said, enough is enough. And taken together, what that means is that when God looked upon his people under the threat of judgment, He didn't have the heart to carry it out because he loved them so much, because he was so merciful, because he's so kind, because he looks upon them and sees that they are helpless and harassed like sheep without a shepherd. He has compassion on them and chooses to deliver them instead, thus showing us his true character. That what he has said when he revealed his glory to our forefathers, that he is merciful and gracious. He is slow to anger and abounding in love. He is faithful. He keeps his covenant for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. No wonder David, who was a man after God's own heart, cried out for mercy. It wasn't a Hail Mary pass but a real prayer because he was confident that God who is mercy would answer. And when God answers him, David lifts his eyes and what does he see? He sees a terrifying vision of the angel of the Lord standing between earth and heaven in his hand with a sword drawn in it standing over Jerusalem. The case is undecided. Who is this angel of the Lord? Well, the scriptures tell us that this is none other than Jesus before he became God in the flesh and dwelt among us. He's the man who stood before Joshua as Israel came into the promised land to conquer it. He's the commander of the Lord's army. 
He tells us when he comes into the world that he has not come to bring peace to the earth, but a sword that divides and conquers. A sharp double-edged sword that pierces to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and marrow, and perceives the thoughts and the intentions of our hearts. And furthermore, no one is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. Whoever tries to hide his life from him will lose it. Whoever exposes his life to him will find it. He comes with a sword to destroy the works of the devil, to defeat the darkness and death of the world, to deliver his people from evil. The angel of the Lord is the divine warrior king who has come into the world to crush the serpent's head and to save his people from sin and death. This is who David saw standing between heaven and earth. And this is why David and the elders fell on their faces while they were cloaked in the garments of repentance. And speaking of repentance, I want you to know that repentance is the only way out of regret and remorse. It's the only way into refreshment and renewal. And so I want you to consider carefully how you would respond to this angel of the Lord coming towards you with a sword drawn in his hand. You know your heart. You know your life. You know what you're about. You know the corners you cut and the cheat codes you use to get ahead in life. You know the secret habits that you've cultivated and the way you hide from each other and try to hide from the Lord. You know the pet sins that you keep around that you can delete from your browsers and that you can keep along just to keep you comfortable to medicate you when the time is just right. You know the kinds of chariots and the kinds of horses you trust in. You know what you're up to. You know what you're trying to get away with. Furthermore, the Lord Jesus Christ knows, and there's a sword in his hand hanging over us, exposing us, showing us what we're really about. And so I want to encourage you to take inventory of your life, to practice repentance, to confess your sins every day, to ask for mercy again and again and again, and know that you must fall into his hand or you will fall under his sword. Seek God's face and live. In the words of that prophet known as the man in black, you can run on for a long time. You can run on for a long time, ducking and dodging. You can run on for a long time, but sooner or later, God will cut you down. Sooner or later, God will cut you down. We can't run forever. We must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, where books will be opened, swords will be drawn, and each and every one of us will give an account for our life, my life alone, your life alone. And if you don't want to end up like an old man filled with regret on that day, repent and believe the gospel on this day. My little children, I'm preaching these things to you so that you might not sin. But I want you to know that if and when anyone does sin, you're not alone. You have an advocate with a father. You have a brother that comes alongside you, puts his arm around you, calls you to himself. He upholds you and gives you the right to stand in the presence of God.
It is Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins. And not only for our sins, but for the sins of the whole world. And it is through him and in him that God shows his love among us. God sends his son into the world. Not to strike us down with a sword, but to spare us from that sword so that we might live through his son. And it is in this love that we find life. And it is in this that we see what love truly is. Not that we have loved God, but that God loved us and sent his son to be the atoning sacrifice for our sins. And so if we confess our sins, if we repent our sins, if we cry out to God for mercy, God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all of them. He does it with the blood of Jesus. So my brothers and sisters, I want you to know what true love is. It is Christ our King laying down his life for us to save us from our sins and to spare us from the sword. I want to preach these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. And this is the confidence that we have in the presence of God that we, if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have what we have asked of him. Especially when we ask of him mercy. Especially when we pray, Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me, a sinner. O Lamb of God, who takes away the sins of the world, have mercy on me. Lord, have mercy. Christ, have mercy on me, a sinner. If you want to go home justified, declared right with God, this is what you confess. This is what you cry. And this is what you claim as your own, the forgiveness of your sins in the mercy of God. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, let us pray.